While many governments, organizations, and individuals agree that environmental sustainability is important, moving from words to policies to behaviors is a challenge. To achieve our ambitious environmental targets, we will need to use all of the tools at our disposal. One tool policymakers and organizations are turning to is psychology. If we know how people come to their decisions, we can figure out how to get them to make better ones. Our guest this episode sees sustainability as a behavioral problem as much as an environmental problem. Dr. Jiaying Zhao, Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Sustainability, talks with us about how to nudge people to better decisions, how organizations can use psychological insights to guide their behaviors and those of their customers and employees, and about her experience talking science with politicians. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest this episode is Dr. Jiaying Zhao. She's Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Sustainability and an Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology and the Institute for Resources and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Zhao's research uses psychological principles to understand how design, behavior, and thinking patterns influence our decisions and actions around sustainability. This approach is increasingly being used by policymakers, organizations, and individuals to create policies and practices that will help them change their behaviors for a more sustainable future. Dr. Zhao, welcome to Bright Future. Thank you for having me. As the Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Sustainability, let me start with probably the easiest question. What is behavioral sustainability and why have you dedicated your life to it? It's the perfect marriage between psychology and sustainability. What that means is it's about designing human behavior for a sustainable world. And why I have dedicated myself to it? Because I feel compelled to do something about the crises that we face every day. Crises like climate change, like poverty, more recently the pandemic. There's a lot that psychology can do. As a psychologist, I felt like this is my mission to use psychology to develop solutions, make psychology useful, change human behavior at a collective scale toward a more sustainable future. Your research has four distinct areas, environmental behavior, environmental cognition, how we understand the environment, statistical cognition, so how well we can understand some of the numbers that we need to in understanding sustainability. And then resource scarcity and impact of resource scarcity. One of the things that we have found in our research, and one of the things that we've heard in talking with business leaders and government leaders, is there's an opportunity here that people see for the post-pandemic recovery to help us really drive towards whether sustainability goals, whether those are climate-related in the design of our cities, in individual behaviors, there seems to be an opportunity for us to use this crisis that we've all gone through. What are the key findings from the research that you've done that you hope policymakers or businesses would look to, to help them understand how sustainability can be part of our recovery? I would like to probably touch on two points. One is on plastics, single-use plastics, and the other one is on carbon emissions. Both are relevant to their behaviors during the pandemic and also after the pandemic. One important change in our daily life is we have to use single-use plastics more during the pandemic for hygiene reasons. 
I was forced to use plastic bags. I could not use my tote bags when I go grocery shopping. And I can't eat at restaurants that I have to get takeout. And that involves a ton of single-use plastics. There's probably a spike in single-use plastics and the kind of pollution aspect of that during the pandemic. What that means is that post-pandemic, we need to do something drastic to curb that plastic consumption. I have an active line of research that looks at how can we change behavior, specifically consumer behavior, to reduce single-use plastics. We've done that with OceanWise. We ran an experiment where we designed different kinds of posters and signage to reduce plastic waste. What worked was if you show a marine animal, like a dolphin or a turtle, trapped in plastic debris, you know, like a plastic bag or a straw, that seems to be the most effective intervention to reduce plastic waste in garbage bins, even in recycling and all kinds of waste streams. What this suggests is that maybe we can encourage the public to reduce their plastic consumption by highlighting the downstream consequences of our actions. That vivid image of a dolphin trapped in a plastic bag connects my immediate action to the future consequence of plastic waste in the ocean. There's a lot we can do to reduce single-use plastics. We have to do something about this. The volume of single-use plastic is just really high. The second topic is carbon emissions. There has been some report showing the emissions from travel has been reduced significantly. I think it's about 17% or so during the pandemic, which is good news. But the question is, is it going to be sustainable? Now, I think the emissions are going back up as we relax some of the restrictions. The important question is post-pandemic, how can we keep our emissions low? We can't just say, yeah, look, we need to lock down society to mitigate climate change. That's obviously not a popular opinion, nor a feasible one. In terms of policy, we can use policy tools like either carbon tax or the cap and trade. A better one is called Great Swap, where you tax carbon emissions, but you use that revenue to pay people back, let's say, to compensate on income tax. This is what BC is doing quite successfully, and I think this could be the future for a nationwide policy change. We need to think more about the way we travel going forward post the pandemic. Do we need to drive to work? Do we need to fly to see people? attend conferences. In my lab, we have been working on what are the benefits of these virtual interactions. This is joint work with Professor Elizabeth Dunn. We're looking at the well-being benefits in addition to the carbon benefits of online conferences and meetings. That's another priority for us to go forward with. On the plastics thing, we've done some work as it relates to Canada's recycling infrastructure and how that needs to change. When you think about those topics, what is it about our plastic waste or our contributions to climate change that behavioral or psychological insights to make those changes? Well, psychology is important because we're all human beings, including consumers, policymakers, stakeholders, decision makers. We're all human beings, right? And what psychology can contribute is to reveal the hidden process of the human mind that governs human behavior. Let's say if the government wants to reduce single-use plastics, then the psychology of the consumer is important to understand because we need to understand why people use plastics. Is it because they're, they're convenient, they are cheap, and they're easy to get rid of? 
That's the consumer side. Now there's the business side. Again, why are businesses using single-use plastics? Maybe because they can, they're not taxed on it. We need to understand why people make those decisions, why they consume in the first place, in order to figure out what to do about this problem. Because essentially, it's, to me, it's a behavioral problem, not just an environmental problem. Some of what you've said in terms of using cute animals makes a little bit of sense in terms of, okay, well, of course, we're affected by the humanization of some of those animals and things like that. What are some of the most surprising things that you found when you looked into how people are making decisions around sustainability that might surprise us or might not be intuitive? Right now, my biggest surprise so far is the finding that people actually know very little about carbon footprint. So there's all the campaign and all these targets of reducing carbon emissions. That's great. But do the public even understand it? Do they even have a remote sense of what that means? My recent work shows the Canadian public, they actually have very little idea of how much carbon footprint they have and what each action entails for your carbon emissions. We discovered that people couldn't make a simple trade-off. So if I ask you, Michael, how many hamburgers do you need to give up to offset a flight from New York to London? It's a very straightforward problem. Do you have an answer to that? <laughs> no, I, I'm hoping it's a lot of hamburgers, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's, about, it's about 300 hamburgers. But I get responses from anywhere from two to 5,000. And these are answers from not just people from the public who don't know much about climate science and experts who actually work on climate science. Why do you think that is then, that we don't know or we can't understand it? Is it because we can't grasp the big numbers? Is it because we don't understand our own contributions? We don't have the feedback. There is no feedback at this point on my actions. Right? There's no auditing. If I, it's unlike filing for your tax, which is coming up. I have to kind of review my tax and my, all my income information and figure out, oh, did I pay more or less than I was supposed to? We never have this system for carbon emissions. Right? There's no annual audit or review of my carbon footprint. Very few people actually would do a carbon calculator. There are many calculators out there. They're not very effective in translating the knowledge to actions of people who actually do the carbon calculation, it's unclear what they should do after that, right? Oh, you just told me my carbon footprint is 16 tons, which is the Canadian average, right? 16 tons of greenhouse gases a year. The Paris Agreement said we should get to two tons. Now, I guess, how are we going to, you know, reduce from 16 to two? That's a significant challenge. Now, what does two tons mean? Two tons is actually one flight. From Vancouver to London, it's, that's, what, that's two tons. But all I'm saying is that I think there's just so little feedback to the individual person on their carbon footprint or their, their personal relevance to climate change. What are you contributing? You know, We need to first make that information more transparent. It's almost like getting an electricity bill. This is your utility bill of the month. Is there any way we can give people like a sense of their carbon emission bill? Not a bill, but like just some kind of report. And is that the kind of thing where it's just that we haven't thought to make that information available? Is it a communications problem or is it an analytics problem from your perspective? I think it's both. 
the analytics will be challenging is not the accounting part. It's easy to figure out the carbon footprint of each action that's doable. What's problematic is having people report back or can we have a reliable accounting system for carbon, for individual carbon, not just for businesses? That's tricky, right? So all the carbon calculators out there rely on self-report. I literally have to say, how many flights did I take this year? How many kilometers did I drive this year? And that information is not really reliable because I'm using my memory. If this somehow becomes consequential, then you can see that people are going to be motivated not to give you the right information. That accounting system is going to be tricky to have to make sure the analytics are correct and accurate. That's the first part. I think the second part is what the communication aspect. I think we need to get the accounting part done first so that we know the information we have is accurate. Then we can think about how to communicate that to the individual person. There are many organizations, individuals, governments who have all made strong commitments to sustainability, to improving sustainability metrics. Organizations have gotten quite sophisticated in the presentation of their organizational contributions to sustainability. Where do you think organizations should be looking to behavioral psychology or some of this work to help influence their behaviors, but also the bigger piece? If we're going to achieve any of these goals beyond just saying that we want to, there's a lot of individual, organizational, and broad society-wide action that's going to need to happen. Organizations can reflect on their current practice to see what they can do to reduce their, let's say, environmental impact. Right? So not just the carbon impact, but ecological impact in general. This could involve their practices, their communications, or their relationship with their clients, what they can tell their customers, as well as their employees, what to do. Do you have a cheat sheet for sort of behavioral insights that are good starting points for organizations to keep in mind as they review their programs or think about the ways in which they're engaging in sustainability practices? Yes. The cheat sheet I use is called EAST. EAST means easy, attractive, social, and timely. This is one of the many behavioral change frameworks out there that we call nudge frameworks that suggest that if you want to change human behavior effectively, you should make your programs or policies, procedures easy. So that's the East, that's E in the East. Attractive, that people will buy into it and they will make notice of. Social, so make it like a norm, make it a collective action instead of individual. And timely, so communicate in a timely manner. That's what I would suggest. So my cheat sheet is East. If I can pivot a little bit, I think it's still connected, obviously, to the sustainability piece, but it is around the ability to understand the numbers and the context of it in terms of our contributions to the sustainability challenges. Sometimes you could look at the goals and think, well, what's my contribution to it? Or the challenge seems so large. And you've done a lot of work on thinking about how we understand statistics and numeracy and how that can help to influence decision. We're an independent research organization. Our economic forecasts rely on pretty complicated statistical models. 
we have a common challenge in terms of making sure that complex information is easy to grasp. What do you think improves people's understanding of statistics or numbers so they can help to make good decisions? People have a pretty good intuitive sense of numbers. But that, I mean, if you ask people to estimate how tall is the Eiffel Tower, if you ask people to give those rough estimates, they're pretty good. They're inaccurate, but they're systematically inaccurate. The intuition is right on about numbers and statistics. It's the kind of the true understanding of what, say, the average means. Do people even understand the idea of variance or a confidence interval? Uh, these are more complex concepts that people from the general public may not be able to grasp or they probably have never heard of. One aspect of the IPCC report is likelihood or risk communication. It's very likely that we're going to achieve this, or it's very unlikely that. So do people even understand what likely means here? What is that? Is that 80%? Is it 90%? Is it 60%? So that's tricky because we all have very different ideas of what these kind of lay terms mean, and they're different from what statistical definition means. That's something that we can do to improve people's understanding of these numbers and probabilities. One way that psychology has contributed so far is instead of saying likely or unlikely in the report, show the actual range of numbers there's a 70% chance that this is going to happen instead of saying it's likely that this is going to happen. And showing that number range seems to help people's understanding. The other tip I would say is don't just use statistics. In some cases, maybe avoid statistics altogether. So there's this phenomenon in psychology called psychic numbing. This is the work by Paul Slovic. He showed that if we use numbers to convince people to do something, that's probably not going to work. Instead, you should use anecdotes. You should use the story of one person. It's more like connecting with people on an emotional level instead of on a rational level to say, you know, 3 million people, or even like take COVID, for instance, right? If you, if you say half a million people have died in the U.S. because of COVID, that's a large number. People probably don't know what half a million means. That just seems a lot. But if you describe a case of a patient struggling and passing away because of COVID, that's going to be more compelling to elicit actions from people than using that statistic. Both sides of that seem to be so important, but hard to grasp. To me, it connects into this process that you were part of around connecting our parliamentarians to our science community. And you were part of a process in 2018 that I hope you could talk a little bit about because it sounds very interesting. Um, and it was a bit surprising to me that we hadn't had this approach in place before 2018. It's called the Canadian Science Meets Parliament Discussions, and it brought scientists and policymakers together for a first time in history discussion. What happened there and what drew you to participate in that discussion? The event I participated in was the first one ever in Canada, but the second event is going to happen soon. I participated because this is such a cool opportunity to talk to policymakers at the parliament to directly engage them on science and research. 
I learned a lot from the two-day event. I went because I wanted to communicate my research to policymakers directly. And I also want to hear about their problems and whether science can help in some way, especially how can psychology help. I really had a great time. I think I met with four MPs myself, which is a lot. And I heard about their, their struggles and the issues they're thinking about. I learned new perspectives that I never thought about because they don't kind of exist at the ivory tower of the BC. And I also connected with senators and the fellow delegates to the Science Meets Parliament initiative. It was very informative for me. And I think this is something we need to do more as a scientist. It's not just to stay within our little institution and get out more and talk to policymakers who have a bigger say in guiding national policy. Do you have any thoughts on the state of our policy and our parliamentary environment as it relates to the use of science? Certainly from our perspective, the more we can use information and well-reasoned science and analytics to help inform decision-making, the better off we are. The Canadian situation is certainly better than some of our other colleagues that maybe are swinging more towards what I would argue is some of that emotional-based decision-making. Did your conversations in those discussions make you feel more optimistic about the Canadian approach and the Canadian connections between our policies and our scientific and research communities? Absolutely. This model came from Australia, but now Ottawa with Parliament Hill is doing it, and I'm very glad to see that. I think more people need to participate in that communication, not just a group of the selected few that get to participate. We did write a few recommendations for future events, how to build that relationship between scientists and policymakers. Universities or even funding agencies should carve out some funding to support such initiatives. Before we met with the MPs and senators, we took part in a workshop that was teaching us how to talk to policymakers. And I learned a lot from that workshop. Basically, you have to have a compelling elevator pitch. You have to be able to convey your message within 30 seconds or less. Very useful tips. I was impressed at how open the MPs were in listening to and talking to us. There is a dimension of your work that looks at scarcity. And you were involved in a research project recently that I think is relevant to some of the discussions that we've been having. Basic income or our CERB payments and how we support people who are having a difficult time and moving through it. Senator Hugh Siegel was on our podcast, and he passionately advocated for some kind of a basic income. And your research on scarcity, I think, is connected to this a little bit because you looked at, actually, maybe what I'll do is I'll ask you to describe the project that you were involved with. I ran a project with Foundations for Social Change in Vancouver a couple of years ago, where we did a New Leaf project. We distributed a one-time cash transfer of $7,500 to each of the individuals experiencing homelessness in Vancouver. If you're homeless and if you pass a bunch of our screening criteria, then we will distribute the cash transfer to you. So 50 individuals received the cash transfer and 65 individuals who were in the control group that didn't receive the cash transfer. So this is a randomized control trial. 
So what we did was we gave out the cash transfer through uh, an e-transfer into the, in their checking account that we set up for them for free. And we tracked them for one year to see what kind of impacts this cash transfer had on their lives. So what we found was something incredibly encouraging. A few main take-home points here in the findings. One is cash recipients were able to move into stable housing in one month after the cash transfer. That was incredibly fast. Whereas if you didn't get the cash transfer, if you were just staying in the shelter as business as usual, you would eventually move out of the shelter into stable housing in six to nine months time. The cash transfer was able to afford rent, furniture, even sometimes in cars. It allows you to make your own choices and afford these expenses as you find stable housing. This finding actually blew my mind because I didn't expect they can move into stable housing that fast. And they did. We were uh, really encouraged to see that. In fact, we did a cost-benefit analysis just to see how much social service people are using after getting the cash transfer. The cash recipients reduce their reliance on social services, like the shelter system. They actually save the government $8,000 over one year. The exact number is $8,157. That is more than a cash transfer itself. So what that means is it's actually a cost-effective approach to reduce homelessness for governments. If I can invest $7,500 on one person, they actually end up generating $8,100 of savings in one year. That's a good return, right? It's clearly more cost-effective than the existing approaches to reduce homelessness. So that's one finding we had. Other findings include improved food security. Almost all of our cash participants became food secure. They also showed improved cognitive function. An important aspect I need to mention, which is not quite talked about here, was we saw improvements in employment. And that is a finding that's currently missing from the UBI literature. We did see that cash recipients actually worked more hours. They actually got slightly better pay as a result of this cash transfer. So what this suggests is that maybe they were able to put their children or dependents into daycare, or they are able to find a car, as some of our participants did. They got a car and got back to work. They were able to maybe find a better paying job because of the cash transfer. There are a range of positive benefits we see on a person's life as a result of this cash transfer. This is an incredibly promising approach to reduce homelessness and poverty. Whether that will translate into UBI, that's an open question. There are major differences here between our approach and the UBI approach, right? We, ours is a one time, a lump sum, versus BI is more like smaller payments, more regular payments over a period of time. Dr. Zhao, what makes you optimistic about the way that psychology or behavioral insights will help us to address the sustainability challenges we face for ourselves, for our planet, for our country? What makes me optimistic? There are several factors. One is the fast adoption of BI, the behavioral insights in government agencies, industry, and in, of course, in the uh, research sector. The speed with which BI is picked up is phenomenal. At this point, there are over 300 institutions in the world that are using BI to improve policy. That really encourages me. The second reason I would be optimistic is this is a really effective approach to change human behavior at scale. 
based on the evidence we've seen, the behavioral insights research, the impact that a single intervention has is actually pretty large. I have yet seen an even more effective approach to changing human behavior at this scale. I think it has the efficacy to change behavior, and now the popularity is growing. Both of these factors make me optimistic. It's so great to talk to you about your research and to hear about your passion and your insights into how psychology and understanding of who we are and what makes us make decisions can be used to achieve some of our society or organizational goals. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to Bright Future from the Conference Board of Canada. If you like what you hear on this series, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. Our production team includes Andy Joy, who's our writer, and Sarah Mels, who supports in audio editing. Ideas were contributed by Michael Jones, Rob Collins, and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett, and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion or research. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, research, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.